This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. A comic novel about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Who'd have thought it was possible? But now Francine Prose has written one. It's called The Vixen, and it's terrific. During her 50-year career, she's published 30 books, along with reams of essays, reviews, columns on all kinds of topics. Anne Frank, Peggy Guggenheim, Caravaggio, and Bacon, that's what the New York Times says. So it's a pleasure to say, Francine Prose, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Well, in The Vixen, who is our protagonist, Simon Putnam, and more important, who is his mother? <laughs> uh, well, Simon is a um, guy from Brooklyn, from Coney Island, who's just graduated from Harvard. And uh, as happens with so many people, myself included, he's graduated from college and has no idea what he's supposed to do with the rest of his life. So he's returned home to live with his parents in their apartment. Uh, his mother his mother knew Ethel Rosenberg as a, as a young, as a girl, as did my mother. But I should also add that Simon loves his mother. I mean, his love for his mother and his respect for his parents is one of the things that drives the book. And, and really, it wasn't until I started talking about the book with people that I realized how rare that is in fiction. I mean, people have been saying to me, I just can't think of another novel where someone, a young person likes to spend time with his parents. <laughs> I went, okay, <laughs> all right. I had no idea that was so strange, but that's certainly what happens. In any case, he goes home to their apartment in Coney Island and the novel begins on the night of the Rosenberg execution. And they're watching, he and his mother and father uh, are watching television and the reports of the execution from the execution are being are interspersed with 50 sitcoms with I Love Lucy and the Ricky and David, the Ozzie and Harriet show, you know, with, with this sort of bogus 50s sitcom families being interspersed with Simon's real family. And then, of course, with the Rosenberg family being horribly disrupted at that moment. So so these three, at least three families are all there are all kind of uh, intersecting at that moment. Did you say that your mother was a childhood friend of Ethel Rosenberg, just like Simon? Yeah. she. They went to uh, Seward Park High School together. They all grew up on the Lower East Side. And, and by, my mother, all through her mercifully long life, had three friends who were her childhood friends. And they all knew Ethel. They all, and I asked them about it, and they were sort of, um, you know, her, her execution was a tragedy, to them as it was to, to most people who were alive at that time. But but I think they were also slightly competitive with Ethel as, as young people. I mean, she sang, <laughs> she sang the Star Spangled Banner for the high school auditorium and the high school auditorium. So, and they were very ambitious, my mother and her friends. And in fact, all these girls, I mean, they were first, first generation American girls. Their families had immigrated from Eastern Europe, most of them. And they really have, were strivers. So, so the idea, first of all, that someone would be talented was more talented than they were was <laughs> anathema. And then, and then also the fact that that Ethel's politics, that she was a communist, and they were, I think, so so intent on making the American dream their dream and on getting ahead in America, that I I, I think it. 
I don't think it made a lot of sense to them. Although they, you know, it wasn't as if they didn't have a social conscience. They did, but but the idea that that you wouldn't, or that let's say that your respect for American democracy was limited in some ways was was quite hard for them to understand. So in your novel, Simon gets a job at a publishing firm editing the slush pile, the unsolicited manuscripts, and then he is given his first novel to edit. And uh, what is its title? The Vixen, the Patriot, and the Fanatic. You know, I sort of like the earlier title for the novel, A Simple Box of Jello," <laughs> but But that takes some explaining. Yeah, well, well, of course, you know, the main piece of prosecutorial evidence in the Rosenberg case, or one of the main pieces, was uh, this jello box, which was cut into a kind of uh, jigsaw pattern. And supposedly the way the two Russian spies recognized each other was that these two halves of the jello box fit together like puzzle pieces. I mean, this was so patently absurd from the beginning, <laughs> the idea that this would happen. I mean... Since the novels come out, I've thought about the Cold War and way, and in some ways, I was in the middle of it when I was writing. I mean, it was sort of circling around me, and, and the same. But I thought about it, and and it's it's only recently occurred to me how much theater was involved. I mean, this the gel, you know, the so-called Jello box or the made-up Jello box or whatever was just a piece of theater, as was uh, many of the real details of these espionage cases, because ultimately. Nothing happened. We didn't go to war with Russia. We were not, there was no nuclear annihilation. If they got the A-bomb, they already had the A-bomb. So uh, it was just a kind of shadow play. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, but part of the novel becomes about the CIA and and what the CIA was doing during all no this. No spoilers. Series. No spoilers, please. No spoilers. Okay. <laughs> well, just off the subject of the novel, one of the things that seems clear to me is that this Cold War was partly a distraction from the things that were actually going on, from the, the various nefarious things that our government was doing all over the world. And the Russians were doing. I mean, the Russians were killing mass numbers of their own people, and we were making sure that mass numbers of other people got killed in other countries in which we were interfering. So the novel in your novel, that's The Vixen, The Patriot, and The Fanatic, is about a commie spy who's a sexpot and a nympho and who has really big breasts. Is that a fair description? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Don't you love the fact that nympho is no longer <laughs> no longer a current word in the English language? Sexpot, I'm not so sure. But yeah, she's she's this, I mean, the whole book is this kind of lurid, uh, bodice-ripping thriller, that, which Simon is assigned to edit. But, but again, it's not so different from a number of books that were popular in the 50s. I mean, these historical, big historical romances that I read, I read tons of them because uh, because I didn't know they weren't great books. I just didn't know. No one had bothered to tell me that they weren't so-called, quote-unquote, literature. Uh, you have what I think is the first sex scene in literature set at Coney Island on a ride called the Terror Tomb. The moans and blood-curdling screams come not from our two protagonists, but from the corpses and the ghosts that pop up out of the dark. Thank you for that. <laughs> Anytime. Well, you know, I, I mean, I've written about this as, as an essay, nonfiction. That was one of the traumas of my childhood. I mean, not sex in the, in the dark ride, but the fact that I, my brother and I were taken on the dark ride when I was about, I don't know, seven or something. And, 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 and just 
incidentally, those riots apparently lasted 30 minutes. So there was enough time to have sex on the dark ride, if that's what you were going to do. And and when I came home from Coney Island, I, I didn't sleep for a week. And finally, I told my mother what had happened. And, and it just so happens that there's a very beautiful Dan Arbus photo of the interior of that very same dark ride of the tracks and and the monsters, which in her photo, you realize how how goofy and primitive they are. But when you're a kid, nothing could be more, you know, the sound of the screams, the clanking chains. So I now have a print of that photograph on my wall so I can... Uh, <laughs> I can revisit the terror anytime I want to. And I looked at it when I was writing the novel. I looked at it many times just for a sense of what it might have been like. So Simon's uh, employer, the people publishing uh, this terrible book, is a respectable firm, Landry, Landry and Bartlett, publishers of literary fiction, biographies, and poetry. Uh, is this based on a real company? Well, I've been asked several times, actually, if it's based on Farrar Strauss, which it isn't. It actually is not based on Farrar Strauss, although they were my publisher briefly. My first publisher was Athenaeum. My first novel came out in 1973, 73, I think, at Athenaeum, um, which no longer exists. But, but the office in the novel is very closely based on the office at Athenaeum. So, so when I needed the architecture of the office in my mind to be able to write it, I saw those kind of rabbit warrens of of halls and then at the end there was the office of pat knopf who was the uh head of athenaeum at that time and i and i was taken there as a i was a kid i was in my 20s early mid-20s to his baronial office which was like the office in the novel i mean <laughs> you know hunting dog pictures on the wall i mean very much the british gentleman's club and uh and he said to me pat knopf said to me you didn't write this whole book all by yourself, did you? Which was, you know, at that point, you could say those things to young women and not lose your job. Oof, oof right, oof. But and what was I going to say? I said, oh, yes, yes, I did. So, uh, but that was the atmosphere. That was certainly the atmosphere of, of publishing in the 70s, which basically was the 50s, was still the 50s. So the Rosenbergs were executed in 1953 for espionage. Simon's mother thinks the Rosenbergs were innocent. What does Simon think? Well, he doesn't he doesn't know. And in fact, the question of the Rosenbergs' guilt or innocence or what they did and what they didn't do, as I was writing the novel, was was seemed to me to be irrelevant to what I was doing. And 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 in some ways irrelevant to Simon. I mean, his connection to the case is through his mother. So his reluctance to work on this uh, hideous novel is partly because he feels that it's a betrayal of Ethel and, and Julius. But more than that, because he feels that it's a betrayal of his mother and his parents and, and all the ideals that his family have and what his family believes in. So it's it's much more about what his mother thinks than about what he thinks or about what I think. So just for the record, I'm speaking now as a professional historian. We know that uh, Julius was a spy, but he did not give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. The the Russians had much more qualified nuclear scientists uh, helping them uh, with that. And Ethel, the evidence is clear, was innocent, was framed by the FBI. Her brother, David Greenglass, testified that Ethel typed the documents, but many years later, he told the New York Times writer Sam Roberts that he didn't remember whether Ethel typed the documents and his testimony was a lie. And Sam Roberts' book had another shocker. He interviewed 
William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution, later uh, he was secretary of state for Nixon, and he had an amazing concession uh, about Ethel. He said, quote, she called our bluff, close quote. Uh, they hadn't really wanted to execute Ethel. They hoped she would persuade Julius to cooperate in naming other people. The Rosenbergs, as we know, didn't cooperate. Um, that's the history. But, of course, our man Simon doesn't know about uh, David Greenglass and, and, and doesn't know she called our bluff. What he does know is what Ethel told their lawyer after the death sentence. You will see to it that our names are kept bright and unsullied by lies. He can't stop thinking about that. Yeah, and that really was was in my mind all the way through the writing of the book. I mean, the, that idea of some kind of truth or some kind of integrity or some kind of loyalty to historical fact or to the victims, in, or the, certainly the victim in this case, Ethel, uh, is is foremost in Simon's mind and as it was in mine. I mean, and because honestly, writing a comic novel about the Rosenbergs was not an easy thing to persuade myself that I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really, once I realized what was happening, it's like, oh my God. So, so keeping that line uppermost in my mind gave me a kind of courage because I thought, well, I'm in some ways trying to do what uh, she asked her lawyer to do. Poor lawyer who outlived them by less than a year. The New York Times reports that you had wanted to write a novel about the Rosenbergs for 10 years and that you had 14 false starts on it. Were all 14 funny? They were awful. No, you know what they were, actually? They were, I didn't have the first chapter. The prologue, the first The first chapter where the family's watching uh, TV was essential. It was a, it, it was a thing that made the rest of the book possible. And I didn't have that. So I kept starting the book with what's now the first real chapter, which is Simon's point of view about his leaving college and so on and so on. And it just felt wooden and it felt wrong and it didn't, it just wasn't working. So those 14 versions, which I started numbering after a while, were varying attempts to get Simon's voice on the page. And then once I had that prologue, I found that I could do it. So, you know, it's a mystery. I mean, why you can't do something and can't do something and can't do something, then suddenly you can do something really is a mystery. But in this case, it seemed clear to me what turned it, what made it possible. One more thing. You teach in a prison, the Eastern Correctional Facility, through the Bard College Prison Initiative. You are a writing faculty at Bard. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, well, it is a wonderful program. It's an incredible program. And, and in fact, there's a there's a four-hour documentary called College Behind Bars that aired on PBS. That's fantastic that anyone should watch it. And in general, anyone who has a few extra dollars should give it to the Bard Prison Initiative. It's a college program for, for incarcerated people in, in New York State and a number of different prisons. And it's really like going to BARD. I mean, they have to, the students have to do the same things that BARD students have to do. They have to have it write a, a complicated senior project. There's a freshman, uh, I mean, a first year seminar that they have to participate in. And the two times I've done it this past semester and in the past, I, it was part of the BA seminar. So they were literature classes. I mean, I don't, in fact, teach writing, although that's part of it, but they're literature classes. So the first time I did it, we did Great Expectations. We did Dickens's Great Expectations, which I chose because 
there's a convict at the center of the novel. I mean, Magowicz, the escape of Magowicz is what begins the novel. And then, and then Pip's own moral dilemmas are played out against the background of the, and, and my students got it. And the students are incredible. The students are the most motivated and hardworking. And this semester was, was especially difficult because of course we couldn't go into the prison because, mm-hmm. because there was COVID and, in, and the classes, the school kept being shut down for several weeks at a time because there was COVID raging through the prison. So I was doing the class on speakerphone. So I couldn't see my students. They couldn't see me. And um, the acoustics were not great. So they could hear me perfectly well, but I couldn't hear them unless they came right up to the speaker. I know that's, that's how I thought it was going to be. And I kept thinking, well, this is impossible. Anything is better than nothing. Whatever I do is better than not doing anything. But in fact, it was transcendent. It was really extraordinary because the students were so great. And also I just, there was something, I mean, I'm trying to write about it now, but, but there was something of the confessional about it because when you can't see the person you're talking to. So I just talked about literature and about these texts that we were reading and, and the students got the text. I mean, there was a wide range and really got it. And they were, they participated as much as they could given the impossibly difficult circumstances. And it wound up being a great experience for me. And I hope for them, they wrote papers as if it was a normal time. I mean, it was complicated because they couldn't always get access even to the computers because everything was shut down and they were in quarantine, but they managed to write papers. They sent me through a complicated system papers. And, um, and I was very glad that I did it. Francine Prose, her irresistible new novel, The Vixen, is about a guy starting out in publishing whose first job is editing a terrible novel where Ethel Rosenberg is a sex pot and a spy. Francine Prose, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 